This is Heidi McDonald, and welcome to More to Come, Publishers Weekly's weekly podcast of comics and graphic novel news. Uh, I am Heidi McDonald. As I said, I am the co-editor of PW Comics World, our weekly newsletter of comics news. I'm also the uh, graphic novels review editor of Publishers Weekly and the editor-in-chief of Comics Beat. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr at PW Comics World. And... Today, we are talking with Matt Hawkins, who is the President and Chief Operating Officer of TopCal. TopCal, the more than 20-year-old, isn't it? The, the um, veteran, 23-year-old, old enough to drink, uh, imprint of Image, one of the original studios, uh, one of the longest running with some of the longest characters and you know, Matt, ever since we started this podcast, I've I've said, you know, we should talk sometime because you have an opinion on everything. <laughs> I do. I'm an opinionated guy. <laughs> for better or for worse. Yes, yes. But also, you've seen it all. <laughs> yeah. Because you were with Image. What was your what was your entree to Image? Where did you start with Image Comics? Um, I met Rob Liefeld at the 1990. 1990- I think it's February signing at Mile High Comics, and uh, I was not even a comic fan. Uh, I was there with my nine-year-old nephew who wanted to get uh, an autograph from Rob on some New Mutants book. And uh, so I went down there and waited in line with my nephew, and the guy that stood in front of me in the line for the three hours I was in line uh, was Jonathan Sabal, who's a, a well-known inker at DC Comics now and was one of the original sort of uh, Rob Liefeld inkers. And uh, as he, pro- you know, for three hours, I was talking to this guy, getting kind of an education on comics and what was going on in Image Comics and all these various things. And I was in the master's program at UCLA at the time, and uh, I was working at a bank, sort of paying my way through school, uh, very stressed on a number of levels. I did not like retail banking. It was uh, a horrific industry to be in. And uh, when I got to the front of this line, uh, Jonathan Sabal was right in front of me, and he showed Rob his artwork, and Rob hired him on the spot. <laughs> and uh, it was this weird uh, universe thing, because I, I saw uh, a brief, weird opportunity, and I said, hey, are you looking for anyone else? And because uh, there were these 10, 12 guys. Uh, they were young, good-looking. They all had black Extreme Studios jackets on. They were there with a bunch of pretty girls, and, and they looked like little junior rock stars. And I'm like, I wear a suit every day in a bank. I hate everyone I work with. I hate the public. And uh, I'm studying 60 hours a week, you know? So I, my life was shit, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, these guys looked like they were having the greatest time in the world. And I'm like, uh, do you need anyone for anything else? He's like, oh, you know, we need someone to uh, do letters, pages, and write press releases. Do you know how to write a press release? And I'm like, Yes, I do. And I did not. And uh, I remember very clearly driving over to uh, Crown Books or someplace like that, and I bought a book called How to Write a Press Release. And I studied it, and I wrote a press release for that event I went to that they would have sent out before the event. Faxed it to Rob. Uh, He called me the next week, asked me to come in, and hired me on the spot. Wow. So this is either... And you've been in the business for the for the 23 years since then, or the 22 years since then? 2022, yeah, since February of uh, 93. Wow. So this is either the luckiest or the unluckiest story. In, our <laughs> uh, I, in hindsight, I, don't, I, I can't imagine my life being any different than it is now. Um, but this is so foreign. You know, if you go back to the then 23-year-old me and say, 
in 22 years, this is what your life will be like. I would have looked at you like you were crazy because mm -hmm. uh, I was on my path to become a research scientist, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, you can't think of anything more foreign than writing comic books to being a research scientist. Right. I mean, those are two completely different right brain, left brain worlds. And uh, it's, it's been an interesting journey. I, I When Extreme Studios kind of burned to the ground in 95, 96, right before Awesome Comics started, and I worked with Jeff Loeb and, and Rob for that, um, I was scared because Extreme had kind of gone out of business. And uh, I went and tried briefly to go back into the science field and I realized that the four years that I'd, five years that I'd been out of it, that uh, I was really behind the mm -hmm. eight ball. And right. uh, I would have had to have made up those five years, and, and I probably would have taken some time. And that actually scared me, too. And that's when I agreed to go work at Awesome, and then when Awesome sort of self-destructed, self too. Uh, that's when I went to work at Image Comics as uh, I, I just was a creator. I did my Lady Pendragon book under Larry Martyr. Mm-hmm. Now, did you? What was your what was your uh, field of research? I was uh, physics, applied science. <laughs> I, uh, you know, so I actually did finish my master's. So I have an MS in, in physics. Uh, actually, technically, it's MS in applied science. Mm -hmm. Wow. So um, I should get you to do like you know read comics and tell us how they're scientifically implausible. Uh, yeah, I, well, <laughs> yes. I mean, I, it, it's hard for me sometimes to read some comics because they're so silly, you know. But the, that's the great, wonder, wonderful thing about comics is there's just so such a broad variety of stuff. And if you look at the stuff that I uh, personally sort of lean towards, like the wildfires, the think tanks, this new book I'm doing with Colleen Doran, they're very what I'm calling hard science thrillers, you know, where there's real science. Where I've gone to some old buddies of mine that have been now working in science for 20 years, and they're deep in whatever it is, the military-industrial complex, they're working for Monsanto right. or whatever it is. Right? I go and I ask these guys over a beer, I said, what scares you? And uh, you'd be uh, amazed at what these guys say scares them, because uh, that's not anything that you and I would ever consider. <laughs> and uh, I mine that uh, unshamelessly for stories. Right, right, right. Now, I know, no, no, Matt, you're a gentleman, so I'm not going to ask you to tell some tales out of school. But those early days at Image were, um, you know, un unbridled. I don't know. How would you describe them? Well, we were all a little nuts. I think the uh, the thing with working at Extreme and Rob Liefeld's studio is Rob was uh, a, a self-proclaimed Christian. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was not a drinker. He was not a drug user. Um he he some people will say he was certainly bipolar and I don't know that I would argue that but uh he was uh he was a, he had a moral foundation to him and that sort of went across the studio and mm -hmm. I was raised sort of a southern baptist kid too so we didn't really have the heavy partying thing at extreme like they did at early top cow and wildstorm and some of these other places um, so <laughs> oh extreme was, was the was the well behaved studio i see i see <laughs> <laughs> no, I would say in terms of drinking and drugs and stuff like that, yeah. But I, it, I would say that Extreme was the well-behaved But you, Well, yeah, but it was also, I, I mean, I guess I was really, what I was really getting at more is just that, you know, it's hard for people, you know, I mean, we're talking about ancient history for people who have gotten into comics, but, you know, you and I were there just to show our age, but... Uh, you know, like basically you had all these kids at Extreme who were in their early 20s, and uh, some of them were millionaires, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we kind of all were, yeah. and it was it was a weird thing. And uh, 
giving from comics. Let me just let me just interrupt you for a minute. Says anybody listening? Because you know, so these people were millionaires from comic books. Okay, just get that through your head. And now I'm I'm sorry, Matt. So now, okay. (laughs) No, and uh, no, I I, to this day that still uh, hurts hurts me every time I look at that annual social security statement I get from the government and look at 1994 as the year I made the most money in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, you're supposed to slowly but surely make more money over your life. you can't look back at a year, you know, 20 years ago and, and realize how much more money you made back then. Every every time you see that, it just kind of hurts. Mm. But uh, fortunately, I, I invested in real estate, and I, I was a little smarter than some of the guys that bought cars and guns and stupid shit. But, uh, no, the uh, the thing was, was we were all really young. We didn't really know what we were doing, um, and we sort of learned by failing. And I think part of the problem with Extreme was uh, there really was no – management. I mean, uh, not really. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, I, Eric Stevenson and I were there and we were sort of running the, the editorial and, and, and the company under Rob's sort of supervision. And he was a micromanager, uh, which is the exact opposite of my tenure with Mark Sinistri, who was very hands-off. Mm-hmm. So it's been uh, a unique situation for me working with two separate image partners who are very, very different. Um, but, uh, you know, Rob, I think gets uh, gets a bad rap. I think he does love comics, and, and whether he's a good artist or not is is, is, is sort of a subjective question. Um, I think part of the problem with Rob was he paid so much money to so many people that when we started to feel the financial pinch of the book starting to sell less, uh, we had to cut a lot of people's page rates. Mm-hmm. You know, people that were making three or four hundred thousand a year. Oh geez, you can only make 150 thousand a year, and right. this was in '93, '94, '95. You know, I mean, this was a lot of money, um, and there were some deals that were made that uh, could be honored. And I, I remember I was on the business side, and people saw me kind of as Rob's hatchet man. But I would go to people and say, "Look, you were guaranteed, you were told you were going to be paid this. Uh, the market has shifted dramatically, partially because you know you've taken 18 months to draw a single issue." Um, and, uh, that happened a lot where, mm-hmm. you know, people would take forever to get books done. And, you know, I, if you, do you, do you remember Deathmate Red? Of course. Yes. The infamous Deathmate okay. Red. Well, Deathmate Red was, uh, the one, I don't think the retailer pitched about it. It was Deathmate Black that the retailers pitched right. about. Because right. We actually resolicited Deathmate Red. And I, to this day, it was a five ninety nine book. The first solicitation, we sold 400,000 copies of that book at five ninety nine. Mm-hmm. When it was resolicited two years later, it sold like eighty thousand copies at, at five ninety nine. Now, even in today's market, eighty thousand to five ninety nine, we'd all be like overjoyed. Mm-hmm. But imagine going from four hundred thousand to eighty thousand. I mean, it was uh, it was a seismic shift, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was just it was just an adjustment. I think a lot of people were angry because uh, they had page rates cut, and uh, you know I, I've dealt with that a lot in my career. You know, I, I've been reading a lot of people posting online about these page rates from nineteen seventy seven mm-hmm. and trying to compare them to today. Um, I, there's only a handful of people like me that I think have straddled the business and the creative side. And I look at these things and I, I show people all the time, the budgets of these books. I said, look, you sell this number of units, you know, at three ninety nine, you're making a dollar fifty a book from diamond, you know, do the math, subtract out the printing, subtract out the freight. You know, this is how much money you have per unit. You have to sell 5,000 units to break even at like a six or $7,000 creative budget. You know, you start you start backtracking the math, and people mm-hmm. their eyes kind of go saucery, you know, because they're like, oh, and they kind of get it. But uh, it's it's hard. I mean, it's it's hard to make money in publishing, and, and you really have to watch watch your numbers. Right. I I have people all the time that I try to hire to do books, and uh, they turn them down because they say we're not paying enough. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, okay. 
and they, they they think I'm negotiating, but I'm usually not. I, mm-hmm. I, and I always go and say, this is the budget for this book. Do you want to do it or not? Right. Now, you know, you raise an interesting point because, you know, obviously I'm all for people in comics making a good living at it, you know, myself included. And, and um, you know, I mean, when we were, we were, there was on the beat, we've been talking about this all week and it's been a big thing the week, the week of this podcast. But, you know, I am smart enough. I've also been on both sides and, you know, what you're speaking is kind of the truth. I mean, <laughs> you know, I don't think that top cow now is unlike in the olden days maybe i you know i don't think you're throwing like parties in vegas and you know flying around in private jets and you know wasting money on a lot of things this is not you know publishers aren't making reams of money either are they no no (laughs) and it's it's very cost conscious and uh you know, when I started at Top Cow in 1998, uh, the, one of the first things I did when I became president of the company was I laid off half the company. Mm-hmm. That made me uh, a very popular guy, you can imagine. Sure. <laughs> well, it's just, uh, you know, and there was like eight people that were uh, bullpen intern artists. And I remember very clearly going to Mark Silvestri. Uh, he was paying these guys 500 uh, a week or something mm-hmm. like that for as a stipend. And I said, are you ever going to use any of these people as artists? And he's like, just this one guy. And I'm like, well, then I'm going to get rid of the other seven. And he's like, oh, okay, if you think so. And I'm like, you never, you just told me you're never going to use these other seven guys. Mm-hmm. So why are you going to pay them 2000 to 2500 a month times seven? Just do the math. You mm-hmm. know, it, it's just it's just a crazy overhead. And uh, so we're very cost conscious. All the books are budgeted. You know, uh, part of the reason uh, I wanted to write more books, it was sort of a dual purpose of control. And, uh, and and wanting to do stuff I wanted to do, but also uh, I'm a very inexpensive writer for myself to use. <laughs> right. So As you're basically free. cheating yourself by giving yourself a very cheap cheap rate. You know. <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, uh, the, the first part of that equation actually was more important initially because mm-hmm. I was tired of coming up with concepts and ideas and then hiring writers to come in and, and telling them very explicitly. I want to pay you as a work for hire writer to do this, and then them change wanting to change everything because a lot of writers want to put their own stamp on things, mm-hmm. and I understand that as a writer. But I've also been hired to work for hire work, and when someone tells me this is exactly what I want, if I come up with an alternate version that I think might be better, I'll pitch it to them, but I don't deliver it to them as the final work. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I had that happen a number of times in the last decade, and about four or five years ago. I just wanted to do that little passion project thing, and I hadn't written a comic in almost a decade. You know, I, I stopped writing Lady Pendragon in '99, and I did not write another comic until Think Tank, uh, mm-hmm. which was, I think, in 2010. Right, right. I remember you telling me about that. Yeah. So. So yes, yeah, so you uh, took you, you took a break. Yeah, I took a break. I had a couple kids, got married, got divorced. Uh, you know, a lot, lot going on there. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Other things. Now, you know, Top Cow is, um, just for anyone who doesn't know, and you can jump in here and correct me if I'm wrong, but just to give a little bird's eye view of image, you know, it started, um, you know, at this time frame, 23 years ago, with these, uh, with six studios. And, uh, and you know, by the way, the whole story of how this happened, the insane amounts of money that was made and lost very quickly, it really was an amazing boom and bust. And there, there's actually a whole documentary about it um, yeah. that, that was put out by Seacourt. And, you know, I urge you to go see it because it really has kind of like a, a history of the whole image story, which is a very dramatic story. 
Um, but anyway, there were six studios. There was uh, Wildstorm, uh, run by Jim Lee, subsequently sold to DC Comics. There was uh, Jim Valentino and his Shadow Line, uh, which still exists. Um, let's see. There's Todd McFarlane, who had McFarlane Productions. He soon launched a toy company. And I guess they still put out Spawn and a couple of other books. I mean, they went bankrupt a while ago, but they're still they're still around. Um, yeah. Let me see. There's well, there was Extreme, which became awesome. But Extreme is like the uh, you know the house of the elves that disappeared. That one doesn't really exist right. anymore, right? And uh, let's see. And then there's Top Cow, which is uh, well, there's Eric Larson, who only does one book. He's been at it for the whole run, just doing Savage Dragon the whole time. And then there's Top Cow, which is started by Mark Silvestri. So, right. um, so yeah, it is kind of like the Houses of the Elves now that I think about it. So, just because everything in my everything has to have a Tolkien analogy in my world. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so you came on there with Top Cow, and you know, another reason I wanted to talk to you, Matt, is that you know whatever you can talk about, you've probably seen it already. I mean, you with with Top Cow, they, their top character was Witchblade, correct? Right. And yes. and you've already been through the whole. We had a TV show. We had you know movie deals. I mean, you've already been through that you know, you know numerous times. So when did the when was Witchblade uh, was optioned for TV and became a TV show? When was that? Now, uh, TNT optioned uh, Witchblade, and the uh, two-hour pilot TV episode came out in '99, mm-hmm. and then it ran for two seasons through 2001. Right, right. Um, and then it was a Japanese anime in 2004 and 2005. Right. So, and of course, there's always talk about bringing it back because, you know, now we're getting into that 90s nostalgia. So, you know, right. good times on that. Um, yeah, what was what was that like? I mean, this is so far ahead of the curve for when, you know, everything was getting, you know, t- like half the TV slate is, is comic book properties now. You know, so what what was that like for Top Cow, you know, with, with this whole th- phenomenon? Uh, with the Witchblade and the TV show, initially it was it was a pretty big deal. I mean, it it sort of uh, solidified Top Cow as a, as something that could be done in other media. And I remember at the time uh, there was a very strong feeling that we were going to do all these magnificent things. And you know, the uh, the sophomore follow up to something like that is harder than uh, most people realize. Right. I mean, from the Witchblade TV show, we went to the Japanese anime in two thousand four, two thousand five. Uh, the next thing we had out was the Darkness video game in 2008. Mm-hmm. Then there was Wanted, which we set up at Universal for Mark Miller. Uh, then there was the Darkness number two video game, which was in 2012. And in between there are probably a hundred option properties <laughs> in various forms. Right. You know? I mean, another thing is I, I, I laugh sometimes because I don't know that we even announce some of our options anymore. Sure. I, I, I've optioned Think Tank twice in the last two years. And I don't think we've announced it at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, because you see, because what, what happens is, is you keep announcing these uh, option deals and they sort of, you know, and I always, development to me means nothing. When mm-hmm. people say that I have something in development, that means, oh, okay, so do mm-hmm. I. I just wrote this picture on a napkin. I have a right. project in development. So, you know, and that's, uh, no, but when you get something on the air, like you look at The Walking Dead and Skybound, who's kind of taken the preeminent position amongst the uh, image studios at this point, I mean, it gives you uh, awareness um, across the board, and it, it makes things a lot easier for you. Mm-hmm. Things are a lot harder when you're going around and you don't have something on the on the air or something out that's, that's an other media project, and so you're, you're pitching something and you're pitching against a lot of other stuff. 
if you have something on the air, it's, it's a good time to strike, but it's not quite as easy as anyone seems to think it is. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most frustrating things I get on Twitter. It happened to me today. Uh, you know, some guy tweets on, on the top cow piece, hey, you know, E3's this week. Why don't you go tell Bethesda to make a Witchblade game? <laughs> and, and, and I get that all the time. And, and some guy e- emails on Facebook and says, hey, why have you guys have never made a Darkness movie? You know, and I'm like, oh, okay, you know, we don't, we, we don't want that money. We really don't want that awareness. <laughs> never had that thought. Hmm, good idea. <laughs> well, I would tell people, I said, well, we make comic books. We don't make mm, these other things. Right. You know, so uh, we don't have the money to invest in these things. That's not what we do, you know, and, mm-hmm. and when these things are made, they're, they're fantastic for the company. They're fantastic for awareness. You know, I look at uh, when the Darkness video game came out, excuse me, we sold, uh, Oh my gosh, there was a huge selling in the Barnes Noble and Borders and, and various companies at the time in 08 uh, for Darkest Books. And we sold, uh, we sold, we made more money probably selling the book than we did uh, for the rights fees and stuff we got off the game itself. You know, because it's mm-hmm. just, there's a sudden infusion into sort of this, this much larger public sort of zeitgeist with this thing. And uh, if, if you properly sort of monetize it, you, you can do well. Um, I think the biggest mistake that we've made over the years is every time we've had one of these events, we've taken that money and, and invested it into uh, trying to build Top Cow into a, a bigger and better and broader entity. And then we did that in 09, right after Wanted came out and the Darkest Video Game came out, and we had this large infusion of cash. We really bloated up the infrastructure of the company, and then the borders uh, bankruptcy right. and the uh, sort of the economic collapse just crushed us. Mm-hmm. And the problem that we had was uh, we were cash rich. I mean, it, it's a good problem to have, but we were cash rich. So we did not make the necessary changes for almost mm-hmm. 16 months because we just kept thinking things are going to turn around, and we just kept burning through cash, burning through cash, and then finally, uh, I, I just set it down and said, I was in the same position again. We had to do these big layoffs. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's never fun to do. You know, no. I've, in every every company I've been in, whether it was with Liefeld or whether it was with Vestry, you know, I've always been the one that's had to do it. And I got to <laughs> tell you, it really sucks. Yeah. You know, and I, I had one guy, you know, in all the people I've ever laid off in my career, there's only one guy ever who's asked me, hey, Matt, are you okay? Because <laughs> you could tell I was affected by all this. I mean, I'm a human being, you know what I mean? And when you go in and you let 10 people go in one day, that fucking sucks for the person that has to do that. It's not like uh, George Clooney in that movie. Right, right. Like at all. Right, you right. know, and from, and that guy was Mel Kylo, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, he was such a sweetheart teddy bear. He is. He's the greatest <laughs> person, <guy>. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, and Mel is now, you know, happily working at Boom and, and uh, Archaia, so he, you know, he lined it on his feet, which is really nice. And actually, you know, there's been a lot of the people who came through Top Cow have gone on um, to do to do other things. You know what? Let me. I'm going to get back to that in a minute. But actually, it's funny when you mentioned this kind of dark time for Top Cow. But I want to take you back to the other dark time because you know, once again, uh, you know, the, this is kind of interesting in that that there's kind of this perception. And you and I, again, we've seen it a million times, Matt, and where, uh, you know, people in the comics industry just can't believe it when things are going well. You know, they're always like, oh, you know, comics are dying, comics are dying. You know, it's a dying medium. Nobody reads comics. Nobody wants to read comics. And, of course, we know that's not true. Uh, You know, and comics are doing pretty well now. They've definitely improved. But, you know, there was a very dark time in the late 90s. And 
Um, you know, we this could be a whole another podcast, but a lot of people thought it was because of the speculation over Image and you know so many stores and, that opened. And but you know they were also buying sports cards. There was a lot of speculation in the '90s, and when it crashed, it kind of took everything with it. And this was probably the darkest time uh, that I've been through anywhere in the comics industry. You know, and this is probably right about when you started with Top Cow. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, Top Cow was uh, it, it was a there was a delayed uh, economic effect at Top Cow, and uh, meaning Extreme felt it the fastest because it was on the uh, it was on the weakest foundation. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Top Cow had Witchblade, Darkness, and then Fathom, and then Tomb Raider. You know, and uh, Tomb Raider I helped launch and put that team together, and that was the first sort of. Uh, number one book I'd helped launch in the industry in, since early extreme, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which seems so foreign to kind of what we do now, building things from the ground up. But, uh, you know, I remember doing that and how it was done. And, uh, but yeah, no, there would, it, it just happened to top cow. It just happened slower. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. And, uh, and then there was the Aspen split off like Turner lawsuit and, mm-hmm. and all those sort of things that we went through that, uh, hurt, and uh, our, I think, you know, there was a, uh, during that whole thing, I think the audience that Top Cow had kind of got split, where there were some people that were angered about the whole thing, and uh, there were people that were emailing me and calling me and saying, how dare you, you know, do this to a cancer survivor, and uh, <laughs> not really understanding the legal ins and outs of it. And I, mm-hmm. I kept saying to these people, you know, you don't understand, they sued us. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, if you actually go back and look at the paperwork, they sued us, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, it's, it's, I, don't, I don't need to redress yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, it was, it happened, uh, you know, and there was there was a lot of hatred and anger, and uh, I think ultimately, you know, in this business, it's all about following creators you like and characters mm-hmm. you like. It's it's either or or both, preferably it's both. But right. uh, you know, I know I follow and read. For me, it's more about creators. There are right. certain creators I read everything they do. Some of it I like, some of it I don't. Um, and there are some creators I've read, I don't like them, and I just like, I don't read them. <laughs> and, uh, I don't really follow characters. It's, you know? it's, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like vegetables, you know, it's like if you don't like a certain vegetable, that doesn't mean you have to go around, you know, crusading against that vegetable, I guess, you know. Although some people on the internet do, but uh, anyway, we'll leave that for, for there. Yeah, but the darkness, uh, you know, you talk about the, the dark times and the end of, uh, the end of, uh, what do you want, actually the end of the 20th century, right? Yes. Um, yeah, it was, it was not a fun time. And, uh, I, the thing is, is the, the 2008-9 thing that happened to Top Cow with mm-hmm. the borders collapse actually, in my mind, uh, affected me personally far more because mm-hmm. it affected me more and had more to do with things that I had done and decisions I had made. Uh, when I came in to Top Cow in 90, late 98, early 99, um, pretty much everything there was already set. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, I didn't know I was walking into a situation where Dave Finch, Joe Benitez, Mike Turner, all these guys wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that that's the those were the name guys. And uh, I walked into a situation where, you know, these guys all had to be convinced to stay and then they all eventually left anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, right, so right, um, right. it was sort of inheriting someone else's mess, and I yeah. had to deal with it. Well, it I, wasn't honestly, it wasn't very personal for me. Right, you know? right. Yeah, I mean, I also, I think one of the things about that time is that you're kind of, ta- you know, what you're talking about is just that the pie, you know, everybody's always talked about making the pie bigger. We got to make a big, you know, Bob Wayne at DC Comics, he was always, we got to make a bigger pie. 
And, um, you know, I think the pie was very small at that point, and I think there was a lot of, you know, anger, uh, you know, worry, fretting, uh, paranoia. I mean, you know, there was very little pie to go around, <laughs> to stretch right. that metaphor as far as I can take it. But, you know, I, I, I bring that up because there's, there's not, you know, the people who have transitioned from that era. And, you know, Marvel went bankrupt during this time. I mean, you know, that had nothing really to do with comic sales. But, you know, just to kind of throw into perspective other things that were happening. I mean, you know, this was pretty much a dark time all around. But, uh, you know, then we came out of it, you know, and yeah. and and what do you, you know, I, I, I think it's almost like, I mean, I call it kind of the graphic novel era. You know, it started maybe with the manga stuff that, that you know, I was just writing about Tokyo Pop today and, you know, how their manga really picked up, Viz manga. But, you know, when did you, you know, maybe it was a little slower at Top Town, but, you know, when did you see things that were, you know, beginning to pick up? Because cause we certainly have a very different business than we did then. It, uh, for us, I, I, I felt like, well, you know, because in the early 2000s, we had Rising Stars and Midnight Nation with mm-hmm. Straczynski, and those books were massive sellers. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we did very well with those books. So we always seemed to have uh, some sort of uh, successful property. I mean, mm-hmm. it went from that to Wanted. You know, I mean, there was right. probably a couple of years in between Rising Stars and Midnight Nation to Wanted. And then uh, post wanted uh, the business, and then post actually post the economic collapse is when the business has radically changed for us, mm-hmm, right. and uh, it, it, it's become very different because uh, you know image sort of taking over kind of a little bit what Eric Stevenson has done in the last few years has mm-hmm. kind of shifted. Uh, somebody like Mark Miller wouldn't bring a one at the top talent. Right, he would take right. it in the central, you know, right. and so it, it sort of eliminated our ability to get certain projects and properties. So we had to adapt and that's where we started developing more stuff internally. And that's sometimes harder to do, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I always use the analogy is that particularly top Cow in the last two years is uh, we've, dramatically improved our position in the last 24 to 28 months mm-hmm. but uh, dramatically is you know marching up the football field 10 15 yards you know at like 20 yards it's not we're not throwing any Hail Mary touchdowns here right. but uh, we see sort of systematic and incremental increases across the board our digital revenue is up our print revenues are up um, and our licensing revenues are up so when you look at sort of those three categories that's the primary source of revenue for us then uh, you know I, I look at past years and compare it and uh, our costs now are far lower. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, we were were running well over a hundred thousand a month in overhead in the early two thousand. But I, I doubt we're at twenty now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow! So a lean, mean top cow. Um, you know, you have, uh, you, you know, you talk about you know bringing in new projects and everything. There, there's, I, I, I don't think. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure some of Top Cow's books are for everyone, but I, I, but I think that sometimes you guys don't get quite the, you know, I mean, I think people are a little bit surprised if they actually looked at what you published. I think they'd be a little bit surprised at, at some of the variety and diversity that you have there. And, um, you know, you and I were talking about on, on Twitter, you were, uh, talking about how to get more women to submit to you, to submit art samples to you, to get more female artists to submit art samples. And, and I think even on Twitter, some people were a little bit like, you know, what? And then, but I've always done it. You actually have hired quite a few female creators and yeah. over the years and, uh, you know, like Laura Braga, you know, Linda Sajic draws a lot of your books. I know, I think you had, uh, Emanuela Lupacino did some stuff for you. And I, I mean, and, and also a really great book, Genius by Afua Richardson, which is, I think that just yeah. came out in collected version, right? 
yeah, just a couple months ago. Yeah, you know, which is really an incredible book written by Mark Bernadine and, uh, you know, very timely, very timely um, message in, in there. So, um, so, you know, you've been, you know, even Witchblade was had a female co-creator, Christina Z, back in the day. So, you know, you've had a little bit yep. more of a, you know... Uh, and often you've put women artists uh, on books that are you know, a little bit more action-oriented, I guess, where you might not see that at other publishers. Yeah, I, I definitely, uh, you know, I sometimes wondered if we shouldn't wear it a little more on our sleeves, mm-hmm. you know, kind of what we do. But uh, I've always sort of been kind of opposed to that. I, I, you know, cause to me, it's, it's like you always see these people go out and uh, they they wear the fact that they're, a female creator or a minority creator or whatever it is, if that's the first thing you know about them, to me, that's kind of the wrong way to do it. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, it's one of the things that I loved about working with Brian Hill, you know, black guy, uh, writes a lot of stuff, really like Brian, great creator. I was working that with that guy for a year before I knew he was black. Mm-hmm. I remember when I met him, I'm like, oh, hey, he's a black guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, and that's, that's kind of, to me, how it should be. Right. You know, I mean, should it really be... Uh, and I, and I get it. There's there's a push for these things. And when I did the talent hunt, one of the uh, you know I got a lot of shit when I reserved last year one of the slots for females. Mm-hmm. I said I'm going to reserve one of our talent hunt slots for women creators. And uh, it turned out we ended up hiring three women creators out of the talent hunt rather than the, the two that I said we would. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was getting all kinds of hate stuff online from people about. You know, why are you discriminating against men? Oh, God. And I, I, oh my God. It's just this gamer date bullshit. And mm-hmm. uh, it sort of drives me a little bit nuts. But uh, no, I, I believe that right now Top Cow is putting out an incredibly diverse line of books. I believe we've been unfair, unfairly stereotyped for almost 15 years. Um, I think the books that the people who don't read our books think that we're publishing are, are books that Aspen and Zenoscope publish mm-hmm. and that we haven't published in well over 10 years. Um, and because we, and and part of us, and here's where I think it gets reinforced. I've really made a concerted effort in the last three or four years to quash this because a lot of times we would get people that would do convention variants or people that would do a variant cover and we hire like an outside artist and they would always draw like some scantily clad witch blade. And so because that cover imagery continued to sort of be out in the zeitgeist, Mm -hmm. I think people felt like that justified their perception of us. Right. Even though when you looked at the interior of the book, it was Stephen Fedrick painting over a Ron Marsh storyline, and it was very, you know, uh, women empowerment. Kind mm-hmm. of right, right. You know, and, and Sarah Pizzini from day one has always been, even in the Mike Turner stuff, which is arguably a little more misogynistic, always been a woman who controlled her own destiny. Mm-hmm. She made decisions for herself. Uh, she was her own, you know, decider. Nothing happened to her that she didn't have some sort of control over. Um and, uh, you know, I, I, I see so many female characters, especially back then, that were in the, what I call the Lois Lane effect, where Superman has to come save her all the time. And uh, that uh, we, we never did that. So I always was irritated by the uh, sort of, quote, unquote, misogyny label that it seemed like we sort of got. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think we've published a, uh, a cover like that in many moons. Right, right, you know? right. But, well, oh, I'm sorry, go on. No, I was gonna say I think part of it is just because people have that perception in their mind of Witchblade, which mm-hmm. continues to be our longest-running character. Uh, we're doing some stuff with the 20th anniversary of Witchblade in October, or leading into next year, which I think will seismically shake up some people's perception of that book. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that might be what does it, because uh, you know I, I think if people pick up and read Think Tank, 
I don't know how they could say, you know, this is the, you know, we're, we're like a Zenoscope company, mm-hmm. you know? Right, right. Um, well, also even uh, I was just reading um, your own book, Postal, the collection just came out. And, um, you know, this is an unusual book. This is about a town that's, uh, I guess I'm not giving away too much of this, you know, spoilers, but it's set in a town full, full of murderers. And the hero is a postman who has Asperger's. <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting um, kind of, uh, you know, ca- difference, uh, texture between these people who are very good at lying and, and somebody who doesn't pick up any of the clues of any kind of deception, you know? So, right. yeah. What was the, what was the, you know, what was the, um, what was the genesis of that? Well, Postal, where'd that come from? What made you want to write that book? Postal is my version of a nineties vertigo book. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love nineties vertigo. It's always where my sort of natural inclination of, and books that I read that I liked went. Um, and, uh, so I wanted to do something that was, uh, you know, we want to avoid supernatural where we're trying to avoid superhero because mm-hmm. there's so much of that and Marvel owns this Marvel and DC own the spandex set. So I, I'm looking to do books that are set in other settings. And so for this, you know, I, I read something about some witness protection thing and I'm like, I wonder if there's witness protection for villains. And mm-hmm. that's sort of, I went down this thought process of, huh, I, if there was witness protection for villains, not witness protection, but a place where villains can go. They can get uh, their money washed. They can get uh, their face surgically altered, and then they can get reinserted into society as a new, under a new identity because there are hackers that make it so. That kind of thing, in my opinion, has to exist somewhere. You know, it's like when I read, when I watch movies, like the movie Hostel scares the shit out of me, mm-hmm. but a movie like uh, you know, Independence Day does not because right. I know that's just fake. And Hostel, I believe there are fucked up people like that somewhere in the world that want to hunt meat people. You know, so. Mm-hmm. That stuff scares me, and so I'm trying to set stuff that's got some sort of reality to it and tell a fantastical story. Um, and I'm, I'm fascinated by autism, Asperger's, and sort of these various spectrum type things. Uh, since a lot of my friends are scientists, you'd be shocked how many of these people have some of these sort of things going yeah. on, and it makes them smarter and better at their jobs. And right. in the science profession, people with Asperger's perform very well and, and, and can lead, uh, you know, very successful careers in doing so. Right. Um, and I always, you know, there's this perception of autism and, and, and the spectrum as being sort of this bad thing. And I uh, kind of wanted to show a, a positive version of that and kind of try to show what it was like to be Asperger's. Mm-hmm. It's why I, I wanted to co-write with Brian Hill, because my background's all science, his background's all psychology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so the two of us together make sort of an interesting uh, writing team. Right. And uh, yeah, I, I love I love settings. I love I love towns where the town itself is a character. I always mm-hmm. love Northern Exposure. I love sure. Lost. You know, these things where the, you have this sort of this atmospheric environmental thing, and it, it's been actually a really fun book to do. It, it's probably my favorite book right now. Right. Right. Well, uh, as I said, the collection is uh, just came out very recently. Um, or this week, maybe. Um, but anyway, uh, very recently. Trade, trade stores next week. Right. So, okay. So next week. All right. So by the time you hear this podcast, uh, you will, you go out next week and you can, uh, check out the collection of Postal, um, from Top Cow. Now, uh, the other book you do is, uh, that I have actually, I know I just got an email and you had sent me some previews, uh, was Tales of Honor. Now this is an adaptation. This is, this is kind of a publishing deal, right? This is based on a best-selling, the, the Honorverse Yes. That's uh, Tales of Honor. Is uh, the, David Weber wrote a series of 20-some novels since 1991 to present, and uh, 
they the film company Evergreen Studios who did Walk with Dinosaurs, that BBC dinosaur mm-hmm. film. Uh, they have this massive effects house in in Culver City, and uh, which is where I live and where Top Cow is. And I met some of these people. Um, and uh, the, the writer David Weber read Think Tank and liked it, and mm-hmm. said, "Hey, this guy could do a good comic." Um, and so I started working with them to adapt it. The first one we did was actually an adaptation of one of the novels, which in hindsight is a mistake. I don't think I'd ever do that again. Um, but uh, the second one, the one that just came out, I think it just came out yesterday, that was actually an original story that I came up with that's set in that world. So it's like you know being able to tell an original Star Wars, right, Star Trek right, storyline. Right. And uh, it was kind of fun. I mean, that's... Uh, but those, those kind of deals like that and this Adrift thing I did, this video game, those are publishing deals, work for hire deals, where people are just looking for someone to write things. And, and, and to be fair, I, I have the luxury of picking and choosing kind of the ones I do do, but I do those for money. You know, right. I mean, people, they pay a lot, and it's, it's a publishing deal, and I, I put my heart and soul into it because my name's on it. But uh, at the end of the day, I, I really truly care more about the creator-owned stuff I'm mm-hmm. doing, the, the think tank books, the postals, the tithes. Right. You know, the tithe I, is the other book I'm writing. Tithe, T-I-T-H-E. The tithe, yeah. Yeah. No. T-I-T-H-E. Yeah. Right, right. Now, is but you know, is it important for a publisher like Top Cow? Is it important for you to do these kind of you know kind of cross-platform? You know, what are they trans? We're not supposed to say transmedia anymore, I guess. But you know, these adaptations or these these uh, shared universe kind of things. Uh, I, I think it is, and I think part of it is because it gives you uh, an awareness to an outside audience. I, I've had, uh, I've seen it firsthand where I've picked up readers for Think Tank and other books that found me through Tales of Honor. They were curious because they were fans of the novels, so they checked us out, and they thought it was quality enough. Uh, mm-hmm. They wanted to find out a little more about the guy who wrote it. And, uh, I, you know, I do 20 shows a year, so I'm constantly on the road, and I, I meet, talk to fans all over the place, so I get immediate feedback all the time from fans which mm-hmm. i think is the greatest feedback i get you know i meet a lot of retailers on the road and talk to them constantly so i'm constantly adjusting what i'm doing and why but like this uh, drift book i did based on the video game that's not even out yet it's just a free download i mean they did it as part of their e3 promotion and i think we've had 300,000 downloads wow. you know i mean uh, it's crazy so i mean 300,000 i don't know whether they re- read it but 300,000 people downloaded this book i wrote the one-shot self-contained story and there's of course buried in their ads and, and a bio and, and indication of hey if you like the story go check out these other stories right so it's uh, it's all part of marketing in my opinion right now you mentioned some other things coming up you mentioned you're doing a book with colleen doran what's that yeah that hasn't been announced so feel free to make the announcement <laughs> uh, it's, it's called control the clock controlled uh, flop my heart control Control the Clock. Ah, okay. Control the Clock. Okay. That's a temporary title. Mm-hmm. I originally was going to call it The Clock, and mm-hmm. then I think Warren Ellis had a book called The Clock, and then I was going to call it Control, and then there was some other guy who had a book called Control. So I got mad, and I said, I'm going to call it Control the Clock. Mm-hmm. And uh, The Clock is an overpopulation clock. It's a, a, it's a eugenics thriller uh, with a scientist protagonist who is sort of unwittingly brought into this uh, sort of eugenics conspiracy to send the herd. Mm-hmm. And the herd being the herd being humanity, <laughs> right, right. And Colleen is drawing it. Yeah, she actually is going to start. Uh, I believe next month. Oh, so, okay. Uh, we're 
just digging into it. I, I'm planning on putting it out sometime uh, the middle of 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized, you know, if you if you look at what I'm doing, that means over half of the books I'm writing are being drawn by women. <laughs> well, I as I said, I, I you know, I, I think people might be a little surprised by that. And, you know, not that there's any dearth of great female cartoonists out there. Uh, but you know, I, 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 I've always pointed this out and I, I wanted to give you a little tip of the hat that, you know, it wasn't cause you know, Matt, I mean, I've heard people say that women can't draw action comics, women can't draw superheroes, women can't draw comics. I've heard women can't draw comics, period. And, um, you know, you don't seem to have a, <laughs> you know, for someone, I, I apologize, but you know, for someone of your generation, uh, you know, that's a really great attitude to know that that's total bullshit. <laughs> It, it is bullshit because if you look at Tales of Honor one, which just came out uh, today Thursday, today mm-hmm. Thursday came out yesterday. You know, so this book came out yesterday. The first issue, she painted it, pencil ink color all together, mm-hmm. digital painting. There's tons of action in that book, and she does a phenomenal job. So I, I think that's just a uh, an unfair characterization of of ability. You know? Yeah, and yeah. I, I I've look. I talk to people about this all the time. I'm like, you know what? There are a lot of women reading comics, and I think we can thank manga for that. Because mm-hmm. a lot of these 14-year-old girls started reading manga 10, 15 years ago with Tokyo Pop and Biz. And then when they got to be women, they craved something bigger and better, and they started looking at what else was around. And now we have a larger female audience. And uh, I think that's a great thing. You know, mm-hmm. I, and, I, and this sort of sand club mentality uh, of some people kind of drives me insane because I – I keep just saying, you know, that's fine. You can have your book. And, and I, I actually appreciate the Zenoscope argument. They mm-hmm. have these books. They do it for a specific crowd, and they're sort of unapologetic about it. Mm-hmm. I think if Top Cow had been more unapologetic and say, hey, fuck off, this is who we are, then people would have just dealt with it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there wouldn't have been as much. The problem that we had is we kind of gave a mixed message. This is mm-hmm. where I look at the history of it is where we were saying one thing, but then we would sometimes showcase imagery that uh, that challenged that assertion. Oh, yeah. And uh, so it made it made people question, uh, you know, the veracity of our claims. And, uh, you know, I, it, it is what it is. And I, I look and I see all kinds of mistakes I've made throughout my career. But, um, you know, I, I think the idea that women can't draw action is absurd. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like I say, I, I do applaud you because um, – you know, I think you had some artists even working for you that went on to work for Marvel or DC, and uh, you know, you hired them first. So, um, you know, go top cow. <laughs> well, and you know where that comes from is that's all Silvestri on the mm-hmm. artists, because uh, Mark just meets these people. Now it's all on Facebook and DeviantArt, and uh, he is constantly sort of trolling the art on plays and looking around at. Uh, it's amazing to me because he'll send me this artist, and I think the artist is horrible. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, this, this, this guy, this girl, they're phenomenal, and they're going to be really good in a year. Let's keep an eye on them. And then I'll just sit back and watch, and he's always right. right. Always. They always suddenly right. – and it's just because he, he has that weird sort of artist vision where he can see the diamond in the rough. Mm-hmm. You know, because I have Mike Turner, Dave Finch's original submissions. We have those. Mm-hmm. We have a little archive of them just for funsies. And uh, I pull those out from time to time and show people tell me how great you think Mike Turner is. And I'm like, well, look at his samples he got hired off of. And people are like, <laughs> oh, see this, you, know, you see, Matt. Now this is why I had to interview you because I I knew you'd be perfect for uh for for all the different things that you like to do. Um, you know, we haven't talked about the big guy. We haven't talked about Mark Silvestri. Now, Mark is the owner of Top Cow, right? He's one of the image partners, and of course, yeah. he is a 
uh, really, I will say this, he's an amazing artist, I will say he's also a hell of a nice guy, he really is just, you know, very, uh, always have the, you know, smiling face, he loves meeting his fans, everything, uh, but yeah, what, what is, you know, what does Mark, uh, what does, what does he do these days, what is his, you know, we've learned all about your role at Top Cow, but what does Mark do as the, as the owner, or the creator, the, the honcho? Well, Mark right now has been working on a project that has yet to be announced that will be coming out sometime next year that mm-hmm. he's writing, penciling, and inking. And uh, I can't announce that because it's not actually a Top Cow project. Right, right, So right. he is actively uh, working on something else. I mean, the day-to-day operations of Top Cow uh, I handle and have handled for over a decade. I mean, Mark doesn't actually have an office in the Top Cow office if he works out of his house. Mm-hmm. So... Um, What's going on there? I mean, I have uh, routine conversations with Mark all the time, and he certainly is involved in the aspects of the company that he wants to be involved in, uh, which is usually uh, specific characters that he may have created and, and their adaptations into other media. Uh, it is art and artists and colorists. Mm-hmm. And uh, like when we did the talent hunt, uh, he picks the winners mm-hmm. for the art side. Mm-hmm. You know, I picked the, with, with Ryan the winners of the writer side. Um, and, uh, I think the great thing about Mark is, is he is, uh, he, like I said earlier in the conversation, he, he's the exact opposite of Rob Liefeld. Rob Liefeld was very much a micromanager and had to be involved in every single aspect mm-hmm. of everything, uh, whether he should have been or not, you know, and, uh, Mark is the reverse of that, who sort of involves himself in the things he wants to be involved in. And of course, you know, he's involved in the finance. I, I regularly talk to him about cash flow, money, and reports. But I think at this point, since he and I have been working together for so long, and I've kept the train running uh, even through some very testing times, mm-hmm. you know, um, that uh, I think he trusts me implicitly, you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I, I'm one of these guys who uh, keeps meticulous records of cash, expense reports, and various things like that. And I, I, I just sometimes I laugh because even with Lifehold in the early days, I, I could have bled these guys dry. I'm sure I would have gotten <laughs> caught eventually, but... There was a time when Liefeld threw me a, su- a, a, a backpack full of $100,000 of cash after a Comic-Con and said, hey, bring this back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I was 23, 24. Think about that. I yeah. know me for less than a year. It threw me a backpack full of cash said, hey, bring this back to the office. Now. I, I would you trust somebody you knew for a year with a hundred thousand cash? Well, you know, maybe he, he, you know, I mean, maybe Rob was like Mark with the artists, you know. I mean, he hired you out of a line, you know, a lineup basically, and maybe he just knew that you were a, you know, he knew that you were <laughs> a fairly honest person. Well, that's uh, that's and that's the thing is I, I I do have a code, sort of a moral code of my own, and and I, I it's important to me that. Uh, when I'm working with people that they feel like they're treated fairly. Uh, I, I try at all times when I'm giving people bad news or, or rejecting people or telling people that they're laid off or whatever it is, do it in as, as humane uh, a place as possible. I was laid off in 1988 at a job I was working at while I was in college and it sucked. Mm, so I, I've yeah. been there. I, I kind of know what it's like. And uh, I, I think, you know, no one's going to take news like that well, but uh, a lot of that is, is preparation. I, I think part of it is sometimes stuff like that happens out of the blue and it shouldn't. Right. You know, I mean, there's right. there's many opportunities to say, you know, weeks in advance, hey, just an FYI, there's going to be some pretty big restructuring. Some people are going to be let go, even before you let anyone individually know. Right. Um, right. And uh, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, I mean, for me, it's just I try to treat people how I'd want to be treated, right. even in the worst circumstance. 
Right, right. Well, that's the, uh, I often point out that karma is like the second law of thermodynamics, you know. I mean, they're pretty much <laughs> the same thing, just different different worlds. Um, you know, anything else coming up at Top Cow? Uh, I'm going to wrap this up in a couple minutes, but anything else coming up at Top Cow that, you, you know, we should know about for the next few months or... Well, the 20th anniversary of Witchblade is in October, and uh, we are doing some crazy stuff that will make some headlines, and uh, uh, I think it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, I'm continuing Postal and Tithe. Those were intended both into, excuse me, those were both intended as miniseries, but they did well enough to where we decided to continue them. Um, as any independent creator will tell you, at any company, uh, a book is ongoing until it's not. Right. Um, <laughs> you that's know, right. For me, that's an e- it's an easy math. Is this book making money or is it not? And uh, sometimes I'll let a book go a little farther into the red to get the trade out, and then hopefully you can pick up an audience. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm relaunching Think Tank in September, which is a testament to kind of the new way, in my opinion, independent comics work and mm-hmm. what i'm saying is it's so hard to launch a new book that you put it out for a while you put a lot of passion into it you market it you go out there you meet fans you try to hand sell it and then you sort of let the book and then i canceled it after 13 issues because the sales weren't there right and then what happened over the course of two years i was writing other material people found this other book we sold a lot of trades we ended up going into multiple printings on the trades and then i looked at the math and i'm like wow this book's profitable now and so I went back and said, let's launch a new volume and let's see where we're at. I mean, I don't have the numbers for the new launch. Mm-hmm. But when I launched Think Tank, it sold 6,000 copies. Uh, when I launched the uh, Postal and Tide books, they're both 13 or 14,000. Right. You know, so, and that's in less than two years. So right. I've doubled my right. first issue sale. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm happy. I, look, I'm, I'm very happy with the way things are going. And uh, uh, Brian Hill and I, the guy that worked on Postal, working on a new sci-fi book that uh, a Japanese-American artist named Yuki Saki, another woman, mm-hmm. is drawing. Uh, and the first issue is completely done. I'd be happy to show it to you at Comic-Con. Yeah. Uh, I believe we're going to be launching that in November. Um, and uh, I think that might be it for the short run. All I right. mean, beyond uh, – there's two or three other series I'm planning for 2016, but that's uh, kind of really mm-hmm. talk about Well, those. you're you're staying, you know, you're staying very um, – what's the word? Manageable, I guess. You know, you're not yeah. looking to publish – 50 books a month any again or anymore no. yeah so. my limit is five I, I i my my publishing plan is to have a book out every week mm-hmm. right. and so you put out four or five titles a month and uh in a fifth week you know, i'm not talking about trade i'm just saying mm-hmm. sure. i want to have a consistent presence of a book a week you know sometimes we have two but most weeks if you look mm-hmm. and you get my emails you know that i'm always pushing some book right that's right you know, and uh, well, you know, sometimes after all this way that we've come from the uh, from the early days, it's uh, you know keep it simple, stupid. But uh, but you know what? I, I again, I wanted to talk to you because I think some people uh, might have a little bit of a misconception about Top Cow, and you know what? I think it's worth checking out. Check out some of the books that have been coming out from there. I think I think you might be surprised. So, um, well, well, Matt. Um, Thank you so much for your time. There's so many other things we could talk about, so many other stories, but we'll have to leave that for the second part of our podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. And what I would like to, Heidi, if, if you're amenable to it, is yeah. to give you two or three uh, issues, three number ones, that you might be able to put a link up on, sure. on the podcast. Oh, yeah. On Absolutely. And say, uh, hey, if, if you want to try these three books here, download them reading for free. All right, well, we will do that. We will uh, absolutely. So if you are uh, looking at this podcast, uh, you look for the link and you'll get some free comic books So from Topcast. So, 
Yeah. If you like it. Yep. So try it and I like it. Once again, Matt, thank you so much um, for your time. And uh, I will see you at Comic-Con hopefully in a few weeks. And, um, you know, take care.